0: a DIY manual for the construction of stories by Steve Almond, available from Zando. Go get your copy right now, wherever you buy books. Hey everybody, today's episode is brought to you by DeZank Books, publisher of the story collection, A Girl Goes Into the Forest by Peg Alford Purcell. It is the official July pick of the Nervous Breakdown Book Club. Purcell's sophomore collection centers on mothers, daughters, and the myth of the American girl. Ramona Ozabell, author of A Wayland, calls it, quote, as beautiful and fine as a string of pearls and as complex as a thousand-piece puzzle. And Kirkus Reviews raves, quote, Purcell is a master of the atmospheric moment. A Girl Goes Into the Forest, the new story collection by Peg Alford Purcell, on sale July 16th from DeZanc Books.
1: You are not alone. You have found other people.
2: You and I have over a black hole.
0: Every and, stupid uh, thing that comments. a writer could do, I've done.
2: I think it's really beautiful. Let's ready Jay, to to struggle, you know? Yeah, it like your head exploded, what was really there. I'm ready. I'm
1: ready and now headache. here's your host, Brad Listy. Uh,
0: just one wow. person at just one time. Hello, everybody. <laughs> right. How's it going? Welcome to the Other People Podcast. I'm Brad Listy, and I am here in los angeles california i'm recording this on july 4th just so you know i'm standing here in my garage on july 4th there was just an earthquake i believe it registered 6.4 on the richter scale i got to be really honest just this morning earlier this morning i went to the gym and i was sitting there and i was listening to a podcast and the woman that was talking on the podcast she was being interviewed. She started talking about psychic powers and how she believes that everybody has them, but in certain people, they're just more developed. And it got me thinking about the most intense psychic experience of my own uh, particular life, where I was in my office, as I usually am. I was staring at my computer, as I usually am. And it suddenly occurred to me, like the, the line, the sentence, I smell an earthquake suddenly occurred to me. And I tweeted it. And not an hour or two later, there was an earthquake in Los Angeles. I don't know how to explain that. Maybe it's just a coincidence, but it was just so strange that I had that thought in the first place that it struck me so strongly that I tweeted it and then that an actual earthquake happened an hour or two later. So just this morning, I was thinking about that. And then I came home and I was sitting at the counter eating breakfast or, uh, you know, having some uh, caffeine And suddenly my dog Twiggy started uh, growling and I started to feel the roll. And it's weird, you know, because unless it's really strong and there's just no question at all, you usually spend the first few seconds of an earthquake wondering if you're actually experiencing an earthquake or, you know, you start to wonder if you're fooling yourself. So I sat there and then I looked up and I saw the little chandeliers in our kitchen. You know, we have light fixtures that hang and they started to sway gently. And I knew, and I heard some creaking beams and wood, you know, all the things that you hear during an earthquake. So that has just happened. And fortunately, everything seems to be fine. At least in my household. So Erin Hosier is my guest today. Her new memoir is called Don't Let Me Down. It is available from Atria Books. And Erin Hosier is my literary agent and has been for my God, a long time, 15 years, Something like that. And she has been on this program once before with Patty Schemmel. And you may remember this. It was uh episode four ninety-seven. Uh, Aaron and Patty were here to discuss Patty's memoir, uh, Hit So Hard. And Patty, of course, is a musician and famously was the drummer of the band Hole. And she and Aaron collaborated on the book, and they came over and talked to me a while back. And now Erin Hosier has published a memoir all her own. And once again, it's called Don't Let Me Down. It is a wonderfully funny and deeply honest and moving book about her upbringing in Ohio, her family life, and in particular, her relationship with her dad, who was a very difficult and troubled and dynamic and interesting person. And there was a lot of love there, but there was a lot of difficulty there. And she goes right into it and captures the complexity of family life that uh, ultimately describes all of us. So a terrific book, and I had a great time talking with Erin and helping her celebrate the publication of her memoir, and that is coming up momentarily. Before I get there, though, I do have a ton of mail to respond to and listener feedback. A lot of you reached out to me after last week's episode, episode 587, my conversation with Brett Easton Ellis and uh you know the conversation in large part centered on his new essay collection white which has been making a lot of waves and has been generating a big response in the uh the world of book media so i'm just going to go through and read listener responses i feel obligated to give everybody i can or as many of you uh, as i can a fair hearing here um since you were kind enough to listen and write in so jeffrey uh, a listener named jeffrey says welp This wasn't the Brett Easton Ellis political commentary that I wanted, but maybe the 2019 American Wildscape check-in that I needed. Killer episode. It takes a village. Another listener named Felicity said this was one of the best conversations, and that's all I'm going to say. Also, I have to go read Brett Easton Ellis's works. I've never done so before. A listener named Iglo says, that was a really interesting and intelligent interview. A listener named Chelsea says, such a great episode. A listener named Lauren says, the exchange at the one-hour mark got my nipples hard. Incredible interview. (laughs) Uh, A listener named Adam says, I admired Brad Listy's restraint in the most recent episode of Other People. I wish uh, Brett Easton Ellis would try to be a little more thorough with his argument because I think there could be more commonality if he went deeper than, quote, calm down and, quote, you're overreacting. Loved the conversation. A listener named Rhea says, Dear Brad, I think Brett Easton Ellis needs therapy for his anger, and there's little that you or I can do about that. One of the best parts of being 50-plus is realizing that there's little you can do about many things, especially angry men. Regards, Rhea. So, just so you know, I'm not 50 plus. I don't know if you were implying that. I'm only 43, and I'm hanging on. A listener named William says uh, Dear Brad, you did Yeoman's work in trying to empathize with and draw out Brett Easton Ellis, which really amounts to attempting to penetrate the calculated ennui and over it allness of his shtick. That said, he feels to me like the Trump of literature at this point, a guy who gets attention by putting on display the parts of ourselves that we hate. I don't mind a straightforward Hobbesian argument, the endless war of all on all, the American spirit is a hard stoic killer, but the laziness of his trolling, how wildly uninformed he is, and how epistemologically apathetic he is, yuck. Yes, he gets a reaction from folks, so does a gun or a fart. But I mean to praise you. I thought you did a good job. You're not a confrontational person, you're a curious, supportive, give everybody a chance to say they're peace kind of person, which is good. You tried to have a civil and genuine discourse with a fundamentally disingenuous person. You made some important points and highlighted the essential hypocrisy of his whole pose, which has spanned his career. His whole shtick is to pretend not to give a shit and then act all weirded out when other people do. Anyway, to reiterate, you did good. Brett is a well-defended guy, having had years of practice and you forced him deeper into himself. Signed, Will. And then a listener named John says, Brad, the attached clip of your Brett Easton Ellis conversation stood out to me. It's when Brett is talking about the types of fiction that he reads and can't read. And so here I'm going to interrupt and I'm going to play the clip in question. So here's the clip that John is referring to. And it's true. I can, if I, but if I pick up a book and stylistically, it grabs me i 'm there easily it 's just finding that is a little harder, and really developing that kind of style is I think key to a writer 's uh, you know existence and keeping them going uh, a way of seeing the world that you 're relating to the reader that no one else can do uh, that 's why I think I get so so um i don 't know uh, uh, what 's the word um, so annoyed by a lot of genre fiction that just is telling a story like a lot of mysteries. Just don't grab me because they're told in such a bare-bones fashion. And I'm not interested in the information. I'm not interested in the information at all. I'm interested in how the information is being given to me. And that has pretty much always been the way I've read uh, to a certain degree. So uh, there you go. So John then continues in his letter. Because of the political conversations you and Brett fell into prior to this moment of the conversation... I heard this clip with Trump and politics in my head and instantly saw a comparison between Brett's tastes regarding different types of fiction and the tastes of different voters as to the rhetoric of different politicians doesn't quote. I'm not interested in the information. I'm not interested in the information at all. I'm interested in how the information is being given to me End quote sound a lot like the fiction a Trump supporter caricature would be prone to read One where facts are irrelevant, where it's all style and no substance. Doesn't that sound like the fiction that comes out of Trump's mouth? Anyway, I just thought it was an interesting moment, and it obviously got me thinking. Just wondered if you thought anything like this in the moment, after the fact, or are thinking about it now. Not trying to use it to prove that Brett is a closeted Trumper, but he may have stumbled onto a literary-to-politics analogy for me. That is all. Thanks for recording. John. So, thanks for listening, John. That is uh, really interesting. I think Donald Trump is definitely a style over substance politician if there ever was one. And if you really love style and that's your primary concern in uh, literature or politics or otherwise, then I suppose there might be some appeal there. But I don't know. I, I, I did not make that connection in the moment. And uh, frankly, I didn't make the connection until I read your email. But it's an interesting take. And I appreciate the careful listen. So uh, that's all I'm going to get to, just so I don't keep uh, this monologue going on interminably. I do I do want to say a few words of my own about the Bret Easton Ellis interview, because you know the the reality is he's a major American author and has been for a long time. He's uh, in the literary fiction space. He's had the kind of success that most writers of literary fiction dream of. Uh, not only did he publish. You know, when he was 21, he sold some books, and um, and I feel like he's one of those writers that people know, and most people don't know writers. <laughs> so I, I I did sweat a lot over the interview. I spent a lot of time thinking about it and worrying about it and wanting to get it right, aware of the fact that there's been this big response in book media to White, uh, the essay collection that Brett just published. And I know that there have been some media appearances or interviews that he's done that have made some waves and there's just been a lot of uh, conversation and controversy and heat around him and this book, not only, you know, with regard to the recent publication, but in general, and especially in the era of Trump. So I wanted to do a good job in the interview and, you know, to do a good job, you have to first figure out what that even means. So first I read Brett's book. Uh, I read a a lot of the reviews. And when I was reading, I worked hard to be open and to not let any reviews or tweets or whatever that I had read infect the read. I wanted to, to, you know, give it a fair hearing. And uh, the truth is that I found many points of agreement in the book. He's a smart guy. And there, there were moments, like I said in the interview, where I was nodding. Uh, I think some of the pieties of the left are, uh, you know, they deserve to be challenged. And I do have some trouble with cancel culture where I worry about, uh, the rules of the game and how that works and who gets to decide and make the rules. Um, but there were other moments where I wasn't nodding. And there were some moments where I was even like kind of recoiling, especially when it comes to Trump. And I said all of that in the interview, I tried to be honest about it while also um, maintaining decorum and being respectful. I think you can do both. And I hope that's what the effect of the interview ultimately was, is that you can have people who don't necessarily agree about everything, uh, you know, especially when it comes to important subject matter, but who can nevertheless uh, have a good conversation and be game and honest with one another and try to share perspectives. And I think that kind of dialogue is in short supply in the country right now and maybe the world in general. And so hopefully it it serves uh, some kind of positive purpose and it was enjoyable to to hear that kind of exchange. Uh, I'm sure I miss some stuff. I've obviously spent time in the aftermath thinking about it and wondering, you know, I could have done this better. or I could have done that better. Or maybe I should have held back here. Maybe that was rude. You know, I was trying to, trying to walk the line. Um, and I enjoyed Brett, you know, in person, uh, he came over, he was nice. He was funny. He was open. He was game. He didn't ask for any changes. He didn't ask me to edit anything. He just said, let it roll, you know, let it roll. And he sat here for almost two hours So there's that aspect, uh, to things too. I enjoyed meeting him, but, uh, you know, again, I gotta be honest that the nonchalance around Trump is really hard for me. And I think if I had something that I would like to do over, I think if there's one thing that's been bothering me, most of all, it's that I wish that I would not have, um, failed to ask him about his disinterest in politics and his professed um apoliticism he, he says he's apolitical over and over again he's very clear about that he doesn't like politics he's apolitical he doesn't vote and you know on the day of the interview you have to realize i work a full-time job and I, we recorded during the week over my lunch break so it was a 2-hour window of time that i carved out for this but i was in the middle of a busy day and I wonder, you know, if I just didn't have all of my brain together. I wonder if I would have been better if I would have had all of my brain. But it is what it is, and uh, that was the time that we found. And um, I think that you know it, there is a cognitive dissonance, a fundamental cognitive dissonance around being apolitical, not voting, and professing to not care about politics, and to then writing a book that addresses many hot button political issues of the day and talks at length about the president and people's reaction to the president. So I'm not saying that you can't do that if you're a political or, you know, anybody can do whatever they want. You can write whatever you want. But I think generally, not just with Brett, but in general, like a critique that I have around politics. And I've, I've probably said this before on the show is that it's this weird area of concern in human life where people who don't care about it, don't really think about it much, don't read deeply about it or watch the news or read the papers or pay careful attention to it, nevertheless have really strong opinions about it and believe that those opinions are right. And if you, you know, if you try to draw a line of comparison, you know, I always use sports. It's like it's like if somebody is like a huge hockey fan and they love hockey and they read the sports page every day and they follow hockey. They know all the players. They know the statistics. They know the teams. They know the coaches. They know the strategy. They know who got drafted, where like all the stuff, all the minutia of sports fandom. You have that person who has a particular opinion about who's going to win the Stanley cup playoffs. And then you have somebody who doesn't know anything about hockey, never watches hockey, doesn't know the rules of hockey doesn't know the players' names, knows nothing, can't ice skate, (laughs) but nevertheless has a very strong opinion about who's going to win the Stanley Cup playoffs. Do you understand what I'm saying? And I know it's not a one-for-one. Politics and hockey are two different things, I think. But it just seems to me that if you don't like hockey and you don't pay attention to hockey, you wouldn't have much to say about hockey. That's the point that I am stuck on. And that's a question that I would like to have posed more clearly. So anyway, uh, I did my best and you know, my show is not a takedown show. I'm not interested in that. And I'm not really sure how great I am at confrontation or, uh, or debate for that matter. I like to meet people where they are. I like to have conversations and let them say their piece. And i like to learn about people and who they are and what makes them tick. And uh, i like to learn about their work and why they do it. All the usual stuff of this podcast. So this particular episode with Brett was, you know, was loaded to an unusual degree just because of all the media coverage and how much interest there is in particular in the literary community. Most of the time when I have people on this show, it's like, you know, I'm asking them if they saw God when they took acid or what happened in junior high or, you know, (laughs) so, uh, I hope I did an okay job. I hope you guys enjoyed it. And, uh, I hope that hearing us discuss and debate a little bit in a civil manner was a positive thing. And, um, I think it's important to engage with politics in a serious way, especially now. I think part of the reason why we're in the situation that we're in is that people don't enough. There's not enough conversation and deep thought and deep reading happening in that space. And there's not enough attention paid to the fundamentals of civics and governance and citizenship. Like I know some people, you know, kind of eye roll when, when I start talking like that probably, but I think it's important. I think we get the country we deserve in a lot of uh, respects. And the only way that we're going to get a saner country and a saner uh, species is if people participate more and uh, realize their own agency. So enough about that. Thank you guys for listening. Thanks for responding and writing and letting me know what you think. And uh, thanks again to Brett Easton for coming over and talking to me. Hey, everybody. If you are a writer or an aspiring writer, or if you just love literature, I have a book for you. It's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories. It is the long-awaited craft book by Steve Almond, So my guest today, once again, is Erin Hosier. Her new memoir is called Don't Let Me Down. It is available now from Atria. Uh, I had such a good time seeing her when she came through town, and I am so happy for her. And uh, I just really loved her book. I read it in two sittings. So here she is, folks. This is Erin Hosier, and her memoir, one more time, is called Don't Let Me Down
2: and i somehow didn't think of myself as a writer so i thought that it would that would elude me like i could escape the necessary depression that comes with feeling like i and the panic cuz i w- i would really just panic cuz it's at the, so but it's so effort- the blank page it's
0: so effortless um or what? It, on the page, it's in on the page. It, it comes across as you are in control of the material.
2: Really? Yes. Because I never felt in control the whole time that I was writing it, and I also hated it and hated myself for taking it on. And I think several times I was like, "I need to give this money back. I need to bow out," and something just wouldn't let me not keep going. And part of it was my agent. And of course, then I was broke after a while. And I was like, I can't pay the money back. I just have to keep forging ahead. But But,
0: that can be a good pressure, like whatever it takes.
2: Yeah, (laughs) yeah. But it felt bad. And I think it was, it's just, I lost my confidence and then I went on a medication that didn't work for me, and that can really fuck up a writer's
0: like what, like an process. SSRI or... yeah,
2: yeah, like a something for one's brain that, but an antidepressant, and it just took months and months to work. You know what I mean? And yeah. I just couldn't get my back to myself where I felt like oh, I, I'm in control of this narrative.
0: So when did it? What was the turning point? Or did you just like the, like? It, it, it's nice to think that there was some moment or like, you know, pivot and suddenly it just came flying out of you. But like most often, um, uh, for me anyway, it's like, then you just start to plot and all of a sudden you look up and there's like 20 pages done. And then yeah. you go, you go back into a funk for a week and then you come back again and there, you know, was that how it was? Or well, was it a, a couple, burst?
2: A couple things happened. One was Classic publishing nightmares happened, like one after another, but they kind of were good for me in that they gave me a lot more time. So, for instance, I originally sold the book to the Free Press, which is an imprint that is now like a little bit to the right politically, but within the Simon & Schuster family. But that was not what the imprint was at the time. Um, And then for a while, that imprint went under... And I got to keep my editor and my book contract, but they moved it over to another imprint called Atria. Which is great. Which is great. I was lucky there. Then I was a year turning in my draft. I was a year late turning in that draft. Like I got an extension. And then my editor. Can I ask you a question? Sure, sure.
0: Just for people listening. Yes. um, What happens, and you can speak to this both as an author and as an agent when an author has a deadline for a book that was sold on proposal and they miss the deadline, like, is there typically a financial penalty or is it,
2: it's not a financial penalty, but contractually they can say, wow, you didn't deliver. So we're going to cancel this. Oh. Um, and then they typically will like give you, you know, you've, you've signed the contract and you've collected on, A portion of the advance usually a third or a quarter of the advance and you'd have to pay that back so sometimes they if they cancel it they will let you pay them back with proceeds from when you sell it again presumably if you do um publishers from what i've seen are not typically like they're not going to sue you right i mean they will maybe eventually but it just doesn't follow through so they don't like to do it but they will get very frustrated and angry yeah and they can do it so i mean cancel your book so it's just a lot of pressure and like working in the business like all these people know me so there's that paranoia like are they just did they just buy this because they i mean it's awful yeah it's awful all the head games plus it's like
0: you know everybody
2: (laughs) right (laughs) So then the editor was – when I turned the book in in earnest, um, the first draft anyway, which was like 400 pages, classically overwritten, she wasn't able to devote any time to it, which was essentially like a developmental edit. So again, I was kind of lucky just to get this pass of yet another year goes by. And my agent was like, this is unacceptable. Who's your agent? Betsy Lerner oh, okay, is yeah. my agent and also my friend and boss. Um, but that's another story. But um, I was relieved to have the extra time to just to, to make it better, but also just to feel better and stronger about myself as a person. So the way I finally got the main... Draft down was I think in two thousand thirteen when I moved home to Ohio into my mom's house for six months and worked remotely there, which anyone can do when you're when you work in publishing but not for a house um, that I could first of all interview her and get her blessing and her um eye on some of my pages, which is very probably unusual for a memoir writer who's exposing a lot of family secrets but i she was very generous with me in like giving me permission validating my memories thinking of things i hadn't thought and then also providing a lot of backstory for things that I couldn't have known I was as a say, child, you
0: have great, like um, unbelievable memory. I have of an this.
2: unbelievable memory. I mean, I just do for things in the past. Like I can't remember people's names or faces in a way unless they're like on a movie screen. Right. But I think like either I'm so sensitive. I think I'm just really sensitive. So like when anything you know traumatic certainly but also just that left an impression on my what i now know is like my writer's mind Mm -hmm. like that eye that you have for sense memory um i just remember like thoughts i had when i was in 11th grade and i remember where i was when i had those thoughts i don't
0: remember a fucking thing i know you told me that and
2: it's (laughs) i think it just did you it's not it's, it's
0: not entirely true
2: it isn't entirely true because attention deficit disorder is so vivid and i know based on real events yeah right so
0: the sticky stuff sticks yeah but i feel like there are some people who do have like extraordinary recall for really specific things like thoughts they had in their youth, outfits they wore on a certain day. You totally. Know, I don't have that level of detail usually.
2: That's interesting. Huh. But you do you do, think that's why you're drawn to fiction?
0: I, you know, uh, I don't know. I don't know. I wonder sometimes if I like blew a fuse, I smoked too much pot or something. Well, <laughs> like...
2: <laughs> I definitely smoke too much pot still. <laughs> right. But it's true. It's like, I have a hard time making things up, like plotting that is, or, or building a world. Like that's something where I feel like I'm not creative. It's just the recall. (laughs) I can, but
0: I can tell you this. I can tell you this. When I was reading your book, uh, there's so much of it. I didn't know. Like Mm -hmm. I've known you for years and years, but I didn't know the, the story. Yeah. And, um, so it was really interesting to like know the person, but not know this part of their lives, yeah. which is a lot of it, but you know, we met as adults. Yes. Um,
2: I think in 2005,
0: that was, yeah, that's about right. right? Yeah. So it was, uh, it was super fun and like, uh, kind of voyeuristic and it was also very much your voice. Oh, good. Yeah. It was a, It was really like, oh my God, this is like, you know, all of Aaron's humor is there and um, as, you know, as heavy as it, certain parts of it can be, um, it was a joy to read.
2: Oh, good. I blew Thank through you. it. Thank you.
0: Yeah. So.
2: So surprising.
0: I want to talk to you about the conception of the book. Uh, you mentioned the original subtitle uh, earlier. Uh, what is it?
2: Yeah. A Father and Daughter and 27 Beatles songs.
0: And you must have come up with that in the... Um, in the proposal.
2: I knew it was going to be a father centric story. Like I think that in my life at the time, I think I was like 34 and I had just gotten out of this horrible breakup with a probable sociopath Um, (laughs) or that's just my opinion. You can call it fake news. Um, But I, I, had been having all these like heavy conversations with other friends of mine that were single um, you know not just heterosexual people but the way that that women were relating to men if they were heterosexual and I believe in the collective unconscious and I was getting a lot of therapy and looking at societal trends and Mad Men was was very much a thing. And I was obsessed with Sally Draper and the way that she had, you know, Don's number, like she was the one that saw everything really clearly. And yeah, that and coupled with the fact that I did have this enormous amount of confidence around being able to sell or write moreover, a book proposal for a biography or a memoir, since that's my specialty as an agent. And even though I didn't sell it, I certainly knew, you know, every editor that read it and all that stuff. Like,
0: you knew how, yeah, you know how to do it. You know what works. You see, I mean, over time you see what works. Yes. And certainly
2: back then, you know, memoir now is really difficult to sell. If you're not famous, you know, or like the story isn't just extraordinary. Um, Yeah.
0: So what is it that goes into a book proposal that like gives it a better than average chance?
2: I think people responded to, I had the title. I had the epigraph, which was uh, Chris Farley on Saturday Night Live talking interviewing Paul McCartney, the real Paul McCartney, I had that epigraph in my mind, and I had the Don't Let Me Down title, which I was like, that says it all to me, about the parent-child bond. And I knew it was going to have that Beatles structure. Um, it's another running theme in my life, and it was certainly like rock and roll history. It's it's what I represent a lot of rock and roll biographies or biographers.
0: And you you know, you and your dad had a special bond over the Beatles. Yes. Like he introduced you to the band. That was the music of your youth. That That was was
2: our hobby, like how every kid, hopefully if they have a dad, like has that thing. Like with my brothers, it was like the golf course. But I've never been on a golf course like on purpose. Um but (laughs) we would (laughs) we would play records and I would but I would would go deep and I would try to understand who he was and why he was like that. And in fact, why men are like they are the way they are
1: well, no, okay, so um, let's, let's through the moment. lives
2: of the Beatles in a way, or through the music and the lyrics of those four glorious, you know,
0: lads from um, Liverpool. Yeah. Well, and your dad is an extraordinary character, like from a literary perspective. Yes. Um, yes. like he contains a lot, you know, there are like, and it's funny that we're talking about this cause literally about an hour before, not even an hour before you came over, my daughter came in here and she was like, dad, she's like, I think there's like three of you. Oh. There's you who talks like this. And she did this impression of me when I'm like distracted and she's asking me questions and I'm like doing the dishes or, you know, doing a million different things. And she's like, that's you when you're like not paying attention. Yeah. And she's like, then there's you who's like normal. And then there's you who's like, Evan, (laughs) you know, and she did this impression of me.
2: Amazing. And I'm
0: like, I looked at her and I was like, you're right. I was like, I'm sorry. I'm doing the best I can. But like.
2: They see everything. They
0: see everything. And she holds my feet to the fire. And I mean, it's good for me, but it's also, it's painful. You're just like, oh God, you know, I can't hide.
2: It's true. It's true. It must feel, I, I think. I, I've never wanted to have children or I've never had that instinct for myself because I think that I was so freaked out by being a kid through the eyes of my parents and how freaked out I could tell they were to right. be in control right and because they weren't in control so and you know for for people that don't know about any of the plot points of the book or about my dad he he was he had an incredible, uncontrollable temper and that would manifest physically with the kids in particular. Like he just when he lost his temper, he would hit a kid. Um and so that kind of hyper vigilance, I feel like I intuited a kind of like if you can have this effect as a child on a parent to the extent that they lose their mind enough to hit you and right. they're so big and you're so small, like what is that that must be like the worst life to be a parent and I think that kind of blessed me in a way with a with like i don't I didn't need to be a mother, which is a whole other you know pressure that's put on women, and so i I just. Going back to what you're saying about your daughter, like I did see everything and I remember, you know, seeing him lose control and what that looked like. And it looked like fear Um, and um, it mostly looked like fear and like regret even before regret could be expressed. Like, which I also saw in the Brett Kavanaugh hearings. Like, I thought when he came out at 11, you know, like, like Matt Damon said in Saturday Live, I'm going to start at 11. (laughs) right? And his eyes were kind of like bloodshot, like he was on the verge of tears the whole time. And his jaw was set in a certain way, like very tight, like, like his, it's hard to explain, but. Trump also has a certain jaw thing, and my dad totally had it. Really, and none of those men look alike in the face. But when I see a, a middle aged man like lose his temper, it always looks the same. And i I feel like Brett Kavanaugh, like my dad, just like couldn't be honest. He just cannot like look look himself in the face. But he knows, and I think. That's the that's what's interesting about it is like not why little... is it so hard to say sorry right. to anyone. But especially your kid.
0: It looks so like sorry's didn't you know? happen. Yeah, sorry didn't happen easily.
2: Not easily. Um like certainly not like sorry for calling you a whore. <laughs> 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 um I and maybe they did maybe they did happen, but it was like In other ways, I don't know if it was explicitly sorry, but just like being really super nice or just being like extra loving or saying I love you, which is different than saying I'm sorry (laughs) and I love you.
0: Yeah, but it's like hopefully implicit or It's,
2: it's implicit. And I, I did feel, you know, loved by him, which is part of what makes me so sad about or, and made me so sad when he died because I was like right at that Saturn Returns age if you believe in that stuff.
0: What is that? What does that even mean? I don't
2: know. It's like a fork in the road in astrology. Oh, okay. Apparently like every 27 years um, which of course is when a lot of rock stars die. Um, the 27 Club. You're supposed to come to this fork in the road in your life where you could either it's either like a breakup, or a death, or like a total career change, or a nervous breakdown.
0: <laughs> Great.
2: And so it's symbolic in that way, I guess.
0: Well, but, but I like I'm the losing way losing
2: my train of thought.
0: No, but I like the way you. I like the way you uh, portray like the complexity of him uh, and your mom, like pretty much, yeah. and yourself, like. The The thing about it is that people are messy, all of us.
2: Totally messy. And
0: it's like he's not... And like there are moments where I'm like, I can't believe he just did that. And yeah. then there are moments where I'm like, oh, you know? Yeah. like, And I feel for him. Like not only am I like uh, relating as a dad who loves his daughter, but I'm also like sympathetic to somebody who, you know, you screw up and then you feel bad and you're trying to make it right. And, yeah. And it's I think... It's a
2: tragic hero in a way. Yeah. Like one of the things I've learned in this, in the aftermath of publishing a memoir, because of course I, it's in the back of your mind all the time, what his, his family is going to think because he has surviving, you know, brothers and, and stuff like that. And everyone has been enormously supportive, but I've heard through the family grapevine that, His brothers were really shocked to hear that he was afraid of their father Um, because there's a scene in the book where I think it's sort of the essential trauma in his life, which is that he lost his mother very suddenly um, in the 60s, right when he had gone off to college and it was of cancer. But back then, I guess they didn't they didn't. They didn't talk about cancer and they didn't like let children into a cancer ward or maybe anyone. I don't, it's so mysterious. They told, they thought she had the flu. Like my dad got a, got like a, a call at Ohio state from his younger brother. And he was like, come home quick. Mom's in the hospital. She's not doing well. And he didn't even know what it was. It turned out to be like uterine cancer, which Mm -hmm. nobody, you know, talked about or even knew about. It was like a, you know, female trouble. But so my dad was like, he had long, super long hair and he was a hippie. And he went, rushed to the hospital, but got there with long hair. And his father, who had been, you know the greatest generation. He wasn't in the military, but he was a pilot, and he just had that kind of father knows best kind of in my mind. From what I knew of him, very quiet man. Um, you know, he was like, "What are you doing here? Looking like a hippie? Go get your hair cut." And she died while he was at the barber, uh-huh. like shaving his head so he could look presentable. And I think that's where his fear of his father came from. But I'd heard stories from my step-grandmother that he used to be, um, that he, that I don't know, that he feared his dad. And because he had a terrible temper and when his dad would get wind of it, then his father, I assumed, um, disciplined him or hit got violent with him but apparently according to my uncles never hit them never had a so much as a spanking unless it was like to prevent somebody from you know playing with guns or something like the and so it's either unreliable narrator or it's every kid has a different relationship with with their parent like if there's siblings or you know it was just this the sense that i got yeah so yeah so so that person my grandfather is deceased now and he's i only knew him to be a very gentle and kind person but but very like closed off in in the way that many in that generation are but that would be that's the toughest like i think that made them sad and then that makes me sad you know, but not sad enough that I regret it, <laughs>
0: yeah, well you know you got to you have a right to tell your story you're you know you you uh you're his daughter, and I don't know, I feel like we have we have to have the right and the authority that to, to tell the story of our lives, and if that involves yeah. family, like
2: if you don't uh, I shouldn't have been brought into the world if if they didn't want me to write a memoir <laughs> right. about it right. Right. <laughs> I mean you just have to parent as if all your kids are going to grow up to write a book about it.
0: That's exactly right. You know, I got to watch myself. (laughs) (laughs) But, you know, I think too about parents, um, like one of the things that I often notice in myself when I lose my temper with my kids, uh, is that, it's usually not the thing that they're doing that pisses me off. It's that I've got other like work stuff is stressing me out. Ugh, of There's course. all this other stuff going on. And then God knows there could be psychic baggage from years gone by that is, you know, yeah for some reason, um, you know, messing with me or something. So it's always complicated why people Ugh. lose their shit. It's not because you spilled your milk right. at the dinner table it's because there's a you know this accrual of frustrations at work or in life or yeah um, the marriage or the relationship with your mother or what you know what I'm saying like
2: I think that's what saved me as a kid was knowing that it wasn't personal which is such a weird thing but I knew it wasn't personal like I saw him flailing I knew that I was more mature and had more control over myself than he did. Um, which I think a lot of kids do who grow up in that kind of environment, which isn't very extreme. It was just his discipline was backed up by this evangelical church that we happen to be involved in, which is another part of the book um, coming to terms with a patriarchal God, Um, seeing what that relationship dynamic does did to my mother who was, you know, fairly uneducated and you know, married and a, a mother of 3 by, you know, 25 or oh, whatever geez. it was in the 70s, you know.
1: Yeah, yeah.
2: Very different time. But yes, I I can't believe I, recently I I've been rewatching Friday Night Lights, which is one of my favorite shows um Who's of your, all time.
0: Was it what's his name, Riggins?
2: Tim Riggins. Oh my God. He cut his hair (laughs) in real life. And I'm just like, it's not the same. Riggins forever. Um, But there's a great scene, I think in season two, where um, Tammy Taylor, the mom, played by Connie Britton, (laughs) um, has a fight with her daughter that gets physical. And I think she slaps her daughter. And... It's something that, and then breaks down afterwards with her husband, coach. Eric Taylor. Um, <laughs> and that really resonated with me because my mom also hit me once in anger, and or its the, but it was like it wasn't anger. It was like I frustration.
0: Just yeah, just like
2: and of course, it's so frustrating.
0: It's, it's, it's hard oh. to be a parent. Yeah. I mean, there are certain moments where you're just like, "Oh my God, this chaos yeah. has got to stop."
2: <laughs> and they're like an extension of you too. I mean, family is so intimate. It's so weird how you can't. You're like locked in with these people. That's right. Especially as a kid, like you have no rights, no control. Yeah. Um, and you you're you're like forced to love your siblings and parents. <laughs> And and when you're a teenager, like, that's usually really hard when you're forced. I don't, I don't
0: know. I hope it's, yeah, I hope it it's not as bad as it sometimes is.
2: I, I can tell. You're already, I feel like our generation is doing such a better job, right?
0: I think, I, I just was saying this the other day or on a recent episode where I was like, quoting a friend's mom who has this theory that everybody parents like 3% better than their parents.
2: Oh, I like that.
0: But like, if you come from like a really bad situation, um, like really, really bad, yeah, then there's a chance that you could make a greater percentage jump
2: for sure. But
0: the typical evolution is like, you're like 3% better, which is not nothing, you know? Yeah. And, and then like your kids will hopefully be 3% better and then we'll evolve as a species.
2: Well, pop culture is getting better and it's, I think it, it's a reflection of culture, but it also helps you know train people to be better. Yeah, I I mean lately, and to to think a little more broadly,
0: it's amazing how much things have changed since we were little. Like a lot's changed in our lifetime. <laughs> Did you
2: ever think like gay marriage would be ever legal? Yeah, it's I barely. Just... I didn't
0: even like know an out gay person except for one guy in my high school until I was. Like, almost out of college. Like, my, even in college, I didn't know many at, in Colorado. I went
2: to the, to the gay march on Washington in, like, 1993 in high school because I was like, I'm a riot girl. I'm an activist. <laughs> and it seemed like, I mean, that that whole, what is that, church? The, oh, yeah, the it, one in Kansas. God Kills Fags yeah, or Phelps. whatever. That sentiment was so strong. That it just felt like never. That it'll, it's never going to be accepted. It's so shocking. I think part of it has to do with like how far we've come with HIV and AIDS. But when we were growing up, AIDS definitely defined our understanding. Right. And the country was so divided. It was like. Remember Oprah, like the show is about like people licking the fruit at the grocery store and these homosexuals are taking over. Um, Wait, people
0: were licking fruit? At gr- there
2: was this famous um, Oprah Winfrey episode where there was a like an urban legend rumor that this HIV positive man, like the only gay in the village. <laughs> I'm using quotes here because that's a, a sketch Anyway, um, apparently he was licking fruit at the grocery store as a way to infect the masses. Oh my God, And she okay. had a special, like, town hall episode, and people were, like, you know, divided in the audience, like 70%, 30%. This guy you know, should be shunned in society for being sick. And of course he was not licking fruit. It was right. just, remember when the little kid that, de- who got it from the dentist, Ryan White,
0: he's from Indiana. Okay. Yeah.
2: There you go. Uh, people shunned that kid. Right. I mean, I don't there know. There was a
0: lot of fear. There
2: was a lot of fear. So
0: I think like we, we've come a long way with HIV, but I think the driver and I could be wrong. But I feel like at least one of the principal drivers of the incredible change that's happened, um, not that it's perfect now, but it's yeah. a lot better than it was with, like, LGBT rights, is uh, culture. I think, you know, the exactly. Ellen, like the Ellen popular show, culture. popular culture. And Music. You know, and people coming out. And when people yeah. come out and all of a sudden it's like, well, my uncle or, oh, my, you know, one of my friends at school. Yeah. Suddenly you start to realize that, like, this is our lives. And, we, you know.
2: Yeah, people, it be, it be, it be, <laughs> a certain amount, of, a certain percentage of people are gay. That's And it. have always been through time. Yeah.
0: So it's like, you know, it's encouraging. I think it's worth studying um, in terms of, like, coming up with strategies for how to advance other social like righteous social causes like i don't know if there's ever going to be a one for one but hopefully there are some good lessons to learn
2: well yeah i mean black lives matter um me too these movements that have apparently come with not just the internet but specifically twitter you know where you can instantly broadcast any secret you may be harboring which is why i'm not on twitter (laughs) as a terrifying you would be good on it everyone says that but i can't i have too much anxiety about what i might say right um if i I always worry that my jokes are just recycled and i don't know how to cite them like i would you know what i mean like i sometimes google funny things i think to see if
0: there's precedent.
2: Yes, because I don't want to be, you know, flamed for um, taking credit. I, who can take credit for being funny anymore? Well, it's and like, not only
0: that, but like you could be organically. What if your sense of humor, you know, it gets really dicey around right. humor? Like if you tell a joke that's like off color, you, you know, the beauty is in the eye of the beholder. Some people might think it's fine, other people might be like horribly offended. And
2: my sense of humor is so much darker than is in the book i right. mean because you just can't inflict that on people right but those are you know you you drift to the people that share your sensibility so thank god for that <laughs> yeah, right. but so yeah we all need like mm-hmm.
0: safe space to just like be able to have a sense of humor
2: yeah. And, or uh, tell rape jokes. Yeah. I mean... You know, like, sometimes it's refreshing you, to you, laugh at it.
0: You you said that in the book, though, right? There's a line about, I think, rape I, jokes.
2: I think I was talking about, like, the third wave feminists, because I, I worked at Ms. Magazine and its last incarnation, when it was still, like, independent, and Gloria Steinem was, uh, you know, still coming to the board meetings, and it was New York-based, Um Ooh, I just lost my train of thought. No, right but here. like
0: we were like the rape jokes. And- Sorry.
2: Yes, I was just saying that. Um, yeah, that was the early aughts. Was when I don't know, just rape jokes, um, fuck me, feminism, um, sex work, uh, STI positive, you know, abortion on demand and without apology. It was kind of just like a. You know, we will talk about whatever the fuck we will talk about. I feel like now it's a it's a lot less like you can talk about what mm. you want to talk about, but not
0: not on Twitter
2: not on fucking Twitter.
0: Well, and we should say too, um, and this you know brings us back to your book, is that you know you' are uh you know you're saying this, and you have this kind of dark sense of humor um, and are kind of willing to go there in humor but you're also somebody who's a survivor of abuse, which you detail in the book. Yes. So it's not like you don't have any, like, you know, there's no understanding. Like you went through this. Yeah. Uh,
2: And, or just everybody, (laughs) I mean, it just not everybody, but it feels like most women um, and men at least know somebody who can, you know, vouch for this experience, whatever the experience is and whether i've experienced it or not as an ally or a human being i just feel like that it's important to talk about things in in their raw state
0: well i'll tell you it's that kind of stuff i feel like i'm a little bit i was a little bit naive i was a little bit na- like naive about a lot of things just because i had this like sort of apple pie midwestern yeah. upbringing and like you know, you sort of. And ex-
2: Roxanne Gay still likes you, <laughs> yeah, right. so it's you get, okay. <laughs>
0: you get exposed. You get exposed to a, a lot of things, and uh, you know, or you get exposed to more things over the years. You meet more people. and You start to realize how pervasive sexual abuse is. Oh. It's like my God, this is happening all over. It makes me terrified as as you know a dad. It's, an,
2: it's insidious, but it. I mean, it's it's good to be terrified as a parent because you'll talk about it and create a safe space and all of that. Um, but even just that you're aware of it and that you're a fa- you're a father who's going to do right by their kid and not abuse them. Number one, right? Because that's part of the problem. My book isn't about being sexually abused by a family member. Thank God, um, but that is a lot of people's experiences yeah
0: so for people listening it was like a boy in the neighborhood
2: it was yeah the the neighbor the uh who was also our babysitter he was like a juvenile but who grew to be a violent rapist um while he was living next door to us and didn't discriminate between boys or girls or ages apparently why
0: like what was he abused like i you know i know that that no
2: it's a hard question like the I mean, maybe, but maybe not, because he could have been, you know, a psychopath.
0: Just like a chip missing.
2: Absolutely. And that happens. I mean, how could a parent, you know, have sex with, I mean, rape a child? Like, these things happen. How could anyone rape a child? Right. Or anyone, you know, how could you hold someone down? Or looking, oh, it's, it's just—it's unthinkable. It's unthinkable. And yet,
0: there's people like it's—is it a? Yeah, I guess it's the mystery of how these people form. Like, is it genetic? Is it uh, environmental? Is it, I guess it's some combination of both, maybe.
2: Yeah, it's yes. I think it's genetic and environmental, and I think there's a hereditary component. You know, there's a lot we've talked about this brain stuff a lot, but yeah. there's a lot to, you know, a lot of science to support that trauma actually changes our DNA and embeds itself and will be carried on from generation to generation.
0: And we all like, okay, because this, this gets to something that, um, I wanted to ask you about because, you know, your father, the relationship that you had with him, certain events from childhood and then culminating with him passing away, like that's the, like, at least a defining trauma yeah. in your life. Um, and I was thinking like, I guess you, if you live long enough, eventually there's going to be a defining trauma Yes, or more or one or more,
2: probably more. I like to think of it as like at least one a decade, you know, like when, when we were kids, it was like five things at once. Cause it, My dad had cancer in his late thirties. We thought he was going to die. There was a a lot more fear than I have in there about like his, my father's um, time out of work or, I mean, there were a lot of, it was the eighties and there were a lot of like layoffs all the time. And it was about the primary breadwinner. And so that, Oh, there were just a lot of things, and plus sexual abuse and walking on eggshells and undiagnosed mental illnesses all over the place, right. a lack of resources um, in terms of uh, so behavioral health, let's call it mental health. Health.
0: Yeah. Which Even is still, though
2: which, we had means, it, you which know, is still a problem. Middle class, still a problem.
0: Like, who gets mental health care? I mean, you got to be you got to be privileged. Um you got to have money, cause it's so a, much money. Insu- and like to deal with insurance is a big pain in the ass. Most of the good therapists don't even take insurance. Right? Oh, it, it seems like it. It's
2: such a problem. Yeah. It's such a problem. I could I could write a whole book about it. About just about trying to find healthcare, a good therapist, anyone to listen to you. The
0: volume of people who probably need therapy or would benefit greatly from it has got to be so enormous compared to the number of people who actually get therapy. <laughs> like,
2: oh, my God. I ratio. mean, well, anyone could could absolutely benefit from it um, at certain times in their life. I, I'm i not like a person that's like, psychoanalysis, you should go twice a week. Yeah, right. I mean, unless you, you, you're in a crisis, then it's absolutely... Um, a good idea if you can afford it but (laughs) the traumatized are the children not that adults aren't traumatized but if you don't get that intervention when you are young like somebody who says to you looks you in the eye and says this is not your fault I see you and what you're going through And we're going to help you get through this really tough time. And you don't have to let these life events define you. Right? Uh, Because the majority, millions and millions and millions of kids are molested or raped every year in America. And only a tiny, tiny percentage will go on to, you know, hurt other people that we know of in this way. Um, so I think the correlation is really fucked up and I've tried to study it because I'm very interested as well. Um, but I think that's a big fear that people have. And maybe the reason why we don't talk about it at all, um, is one acknowledging that it happens in families and it happens and that we judge the, the victims, you know,
0: Well, there's a lot of shame. You write. There's so
2: much shame. Yeah, like,
0: but that 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 always has struck me as weird. Like, something like that happened. I feel like I would be like immediately. I like to think for some reason I would immediately be like, "Oh my god, this just happened to me!" But like, almost no one does that. Almost everybody has some feelings of shame that they let it happen. I
2: yeah, I didn't think I didn't have shame in the moment. I think I had shame a lot later because the shame for me was not protecting my brother because it right so like my experience happened first and he was our babysitter and at my i was 11 and so it was like i was just at that age where i was like hmm i'm i'm pretty i i think i got it you know (laughs) like i might i'm starting to have crushes on on boys and girls but 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 it was like I thought I was irresistible, and this is how boys are. You know, this is... I mean, he was like 17 or 16 to my 11, but, (laughs) you know, shit happens. And I just... I, I think I was ashamed in that way where you just, like, don't want to have a secret, but really, I just... Um, wanted to protect my mother primarily um, protect from, her from- crying right. you know just from like getting upset because she was a very um, she was really hard on herself as a mother like if we weren't all sitting down at the table at like seven o'clock or 630 as a family you know she would cry I mean she was so upset because her world was falling apart um, cause she couldn't, you know, be happy within the family and all of that stuff.
0: That's a lot of pressure.
2: It's so much pressure. Three kids at the dinner
0: table, forget it.
2: Psychodynamics and they're all fighting and then she's like, Why don't we get along? <laughs> I mean, it's comedy gold, like when you're growing up. Right. Um But no, I think the shame comes later and it's part I think for me it's like have you ever had any, like, bad sex or pain with sex or can't get out of a bad headspace during sex, which I think is probably common for all people, I think that's where the shame comes from because I would sometimes link it to, why can't I stop, you know, why can't I enjoy sex more when it really could have just been, like, I don't know for the millions of other reasons you don't enjoy sex more, but I would get it in my head like, oh, I'm damaged. There's something wrong with me. I, you know, I went through like 10 years of dating. (laughs) And so, you know, serial monogamy, but sometimes like one night stands in New York. So I would, I would like beat myself up over that. Like, oh, I have this hypersexuality because. You know, I was—I'm broken inside. Right. So I think
0: these stories—that's part
2: of the shame—is that it is linked to your sexuality. You know, somebody like literally mind fucks you. Like that's what rape is. It's a—you are going to feel this for the rest of your life. So many men, I see it, and I, I'm saying men because this is a, these are the lawmakers, and these are the, they don't, they think that you can just forget it. Like you can just, it's, it's one experience, or it was a bad sex, so maybe your vagina was sore. Like they always think in terms of like, well, did she have a black eye, you know? it's violent no matter what, but it's most, it does the most harm to your brain.
0: Wow. You went through a lot. <laughs> I didn't realize it all. I mean, I, oh, I think it's bits and pieces over the years. You like would tell me but like, I never got the full, the full puzzle, you know, which the yeah. book presents. And, um, I feel like, you know, the therapy that you've done had to have been crucial. Like you have to at some point get help to sort these things out. Right. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's, it's too big of a, I mean, I guess, yeah, I don't know if anybody could do it alone. Maybe you have a friend or a family member who's particularly gifted at helping emotionally. But at some point I think like going to therapy has got to have been, uh, it's got to be like a, a must.
2: I really wish that I could have saved that money. (laughs) Like I, I wish it's, it feels really expensive and it is, but when you, take into account all of the things that we do to make ourselves feel better or to black out some kind of psychic pain, like substance abuse, which I loved, you know, and I still, you know, have a fondness. Like, I get it. Yeah. I'm never going to judge people for picking up that whatever it is, because right. I know what it's there for, but the, it's just not the way. Because it will fuck you up, like that's having a, a a fun, I thought few year ride with like opioids. Wow, that really fucks up your SSRI yeah. experience. You're lucky and to be here. I mean, I'm lucky to be here and it um, but that's part of it is just is also meds for me, you know, and knowing that and not being ashamed of it. And that's another part of like what we have to do as a culture to remove the stigma around (laughs) just basic anxiety, trauma, you know, the PTSD is real. Yeah. So many, I can't believe what people go through.
0: Well, I'm just saying like, it just makes me think like when there's this many people who are abusing um, painkillers.
2: Exactly,
0: it means people are in a lot of pain, yeah, <laughs> and we need to get we meet, we need to make some structural political and societal changes so that people have access to different and healthier means of dealing with pain right i mean it's just like yeah. it just seems like if millions and millions of people are all popping opioids, like yes, they're highly addictive, but yeah it's like a blinking red sign that like people are hurting we. We gotta, we gotta reassess. You it's know, it's true.
2: It's true. And there, there's not enough options. You know, like a lot of people just go to AA or some kind of twelve step program because it's free, and I don't blame them. But that's what they're looking for. Like just the basics of the basic psychodynamic. Like having a conversation, have somebody validate your experience. Um that's
0: what church should be.
2: It yeah, and I hear that it is for some people, but
0: what I mean, what service?
2: It's an institution that like, has a bottom line. Well, yeah, and
0: <laughs> right, and my experience of church growing up, uh, you know, in Catholicism, it wasn't like this like this open venue for people to share their suffering. It was like Yeah. there's a man in a robe telling you what God thinks and, you know, I You know, that's an oversimplification, but
2: that's what eventually drove my parents away was that there was, you know, they gave everything to this church, like all of their free time, their energy, and I'm sure a lot of their money, like people tithe, right? Like 10% of their income. And when my dad was diagnosed with cancer or when there were like problems in the relationship. Um, just the church disappeared. There would be like my mom's one best friend who, you know, hung in there with her once she chose like a secular path, if you will. Um, But yeah, it just wasn't, it wasn't there. Like it's the prayer group thing.
1: Yeah,
0: (laughs) it's a lot. I
2: think it's just a quest for community and friendship and I get it.
0: Yeah, I totally get it. I I totally
2: get it. I mean, I love a, a casserole and a, a potluck and a coffee <laughs> brunch and, right. and community, I guess.
0: we need. Well, you know, we, I think we need more of it. I think we need more like social connectivity and we need to support one another more. And we need like structures to, to, that, uh, allow for that, you know, like I guess in my idealist's, uh, mind, I kind of want for churches to just like rethink the dogma part. Yeah and then get into it like creating spaces for people to just come in and like an AA meeting like there's something so beautiful about a person just getting up in front of a group and just being like this is how i fucked up this is where i'm hurting
2: testimony testimony just
0: like so raw and, and i mean did they do that at your church they
2: absolutely did that and i appreciate people's testimonies the problem is then it evolves into this kind of script You know, where you're washed in the blood of the lamb and you're talking, you're, you're not speaking in tongues, but you're, you're speaking in Shakespeare. You know, it's just like, you memorized that shit.
0: (laughs) But see, at AA, you just say it. And then like, at the end, you're like, I'm an alcoholic. And everyone says, what? Doesn't everyone say something back? I forget what it is. Well, uh,
2: they just say your name. Like, hi.
0: Yeah. But that nobody's like, nobody is prescriptive afterwards.
2: No. And you're not allowed to like. You, you know give any advice yeah. for one which is good yeah you know, that's what i mean to. so
0: people can just like get up and like i think even that alone where people have to hear
2: yeah it's well it's why we read and and write memoir in particular i think is to like dwell on a subject meditate on it hate read it to see what happens <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> <laughs> but it's it's a good therapy, you know. You, there's catharsis to be had for the reader, I think as well. So if it's
0: Did it, you get it as a writer?
2: I definitely would have said no. Um, but now that I'm on the other side of the publishing process, yes. I in terms of like it's behind me. My self-loathing is behind me, and I have this, you know, bright future. Because they just got married.
0: Okay, so I have a question about this. I was going to save this for the end because I'm, I'm. I was reading the book, and uh, forgive me if I'm not like like we were talking about my memory earlier. Oh yeah. And I read every word, but I don't always retain everything. But there was a guy in high school named Chris. Yes.
2: I named him Chris.
0: Oh, you did? Yeah. I named him. Oh, okay. I
2: changed most names in the book.
0: Oh, because then at the end I read the acknowledgments, and you were like, and Chris, you know, you were dedicating (laughs) it to clearly your significant other who is now your husband. Yes. And I was like, oh my God, did she get back together? Like I was. No, I know.
2: And similarly, my cousin was like, I, I thought for, you know, 30 pages that you had a secret brother named Simon and nobody ever told me cause I'm the youngest. <laughs> it was so cute. Yeah. I changed the names, but that person, his name is Alan, um, is still a great okay. human being. And so I look at my life as like bookended by these incredible loves. And yeah. So the one I married, it's named Chris. How but long have
0: you been married? When did this happen?
2: It happened. We eloped at like in a seaside cottage last november good for you after my birthday oh it was amazing i highly highly recommend like destination elopement
0: well that's what we did
2: you did right
0: we went to italy oh It's
2: so it's so good, and
0: like at the time I was like, "Are we doing this right?" And then afterwards I was like, "That was exactly right." Because
2: it's the vacation, and you do exactly what you want to do,
0: and like there's no like the stress of like picking out the silverware. Like fuck that, I just wanted to get married.
2: No registry, none of that. (laughs) Um, But I realized after I'd finished writing the book, though, because of course it takes another year or sometimes too for it to actually come out because of the publishing, the production process. Um, Yeah. So I met him on OK Cupid. Look at you four months before I turned 40. So that was four years, almost four and a half years ago um, that we started dating, but it, but I just, I wanted to have somebody to kiss at my 40th birthday party And so I sort of picked him out of the 95th percentile and we lived six blocks away from each other. It was your typical like meet cute after that. Right. We've been together ever since. And he's. It feels like that first love I had with that original Chris. That guy, in I, was the like, book. I was like, wow, he's I don't think I can ever compare.
0: <laughs> the tattoo—he's married. Knife. <laughs> so
2: I, oh, I know.
0: But like as written on the page, I was like, what well, this guy is? He like, was I a want to hero. He, yeah.
2: he really saved me, and of course, I, you know, treated him terribly because I was a, a dummy, and I was, you know, in my twenties, but. I'm so grateful that I had that because men are great. Can yeah. be can be wonderful human beings and I think I didn't know that and for a very long time. Yeah. And and like really believe in it. And now I know it's simply a shitty excuse to be a man and do, the whole boys will be boys because you don't have to be like that. It's, well, it's not a, your Well, the whole toxic destiny.
0: masculinity thing.
2: You know? I know. And I I get it. That's People hate these catchphrases, but I don't know. Tony Cruz can say it. Terry Cruz can say it. <laughs> Didn't he write a book about it? Yeah. yeah. No,
0: and there's another one come, you know, that just came out by a guy who'd been on the show. His name is Jared Yates Sexton. But
2: mm. I think
0: it depends who raises you, what the culture's like. What your influences are. Some people can coach themselves out of it, or they get a lifeline through books, or you know, yeah. whatever it is. But typically, there's adults in their lives who are modeling behavior that they yeah. emulate. Um, but yeah, it's nice to hear somebody say that. Like it is possible for men to be oh. good people. <laughs>
2: it's more than possible.
0: <laughs> it can be done. Um, I want to get a, a little bit further into uh, the catharsis you know it's a tired question when it comes to memoir but mm. i i think there's validity to it like some people push back and they're like oh please like don't tell me that you had catharsis from writing a memoir but i think like in a very simple way when you're dealing with trauma and you're processing it in literature and you go through the grind of writing it yeah like uh, that act alone of externalizing it yes like it doesn't make it all better like tied up in a neat bow but It does have a healing power.
2: Every single person in my life, like woman that I was close to, said, including my mother, like once you finish this, and definitely my therapist, once you finish this and really, really finish it, you will find that person. And I hate that kind of shit because it. you never – I don't know. I just – that kind of like, ugh. but it was true. It, it's it was exactly true. what happened. Yeah. Like I conjured it. I, I manifested it.
0: Or, but you also you also.
2: Or I just learned to not take any more shit, and you know, I stopped apologizing, um, or or trying to be like really nice, and and then the he just turned out to be like the kindest. Like, I picked Chris because he has, like, I mean, I just picked his picture because I could tell he had these really kind eyes. And maybe that's just something that I've developed over the years. Or maybe there's some women that can just tell, like, or some people where the person's eyes, there's a kind of genuine something. Um, but that that's definitely new because it's. Cause I'd always gone for like wild eyes and like (laughs) drunken eyes or pinpricks for (laughs) pupils.
0: (laughs) Dilated pupils. Yeah. Uh, well that's fantastic. Mm -hmm. And, um, I think too, it's like, not only are you conjuring and manifesting, but there's also this like unburdening, like when you're not carrying that weight or at least as much of it as you once were. Yeah. You know, you have more, um, energy and psychic space, to entertain other possibilities or something.
2: I think that's right. And I feel healthier, like my, like my body feels healthier. Like, you know, I don't need a massage just for like writing, Um, (laughs) like writing a paragraph or whatever, you You know, or a a good cry. I can cry about other people's shit, you know, and I, I, I. I love, I love crying at other people's shit, but I feel, I just feel better. I'm, gl- I'm glad, mm-hmm. I'm glad it's over. Yeah. And I also feel left with an incredible love for my dad and just like, ironically, all the happy memories and you know how like when someone dies and all you can feel are just Someone someone you love dies. All you remember are like the most incredible, like the best parts of them and like the best days, right? And then it's later when the stuff starts coming up, maybe.
0: It's a process. It's
2: part of the grief. But now I feel back in a place of grief where it's just like a sentimental like a good sentimental, like a Beatles song.
0: Well, and they say that you get there. I mean, it's time. I mean, it's a little cliche, but like time heals. And I think if you have like a really deep love for somebody, even if it's complicated, there's obviously going to be deep grief. There's going to be these ups and downs in the process, but eventually you get to the point where, most of the time, the memory doesn't make you cry; it makes you kind of smile.
2: Yeah, like I've been, v- I'm shocked that I haven't like broken down or choked up during any of you know my many appearances <laughs> for this <laughs> promotional tour. Um, but yeah, I'm glad. It, it just feels good, and I know. I mean, certain certain people have been like, "Your dad would be so proud of you." He would. Even even though, right. and I think that's true. Um, I know that's true.
0: I feel like, you know, cause it's like, I mean, how can you say definitively, but you talked earlier about your dad knowing that he was at fault, but not being able to like access it Yeah. in a way by exposing the truth as you remember it yeah. and by trying to be real on the page, you're sort of doing that
2: hum- humanizing, humanizing
0: it and ex- like, and like making it external, like this yeah. is the way that, you know, and speaking the truth yes and like i think that there's something on a cosmic level like healing for him in that yeah maybe you know yeah
2: yeah interesting that you say cosmic i hope so i mean my i have two siblings two brothers and we're all like of that age definitely middle age adults and i'm about to have my first nephew oh. he's due in like 3 weeks congrats um and his name is Jackson after oh. you know our dad so that's interesting it'll be i've been surprised and heartened by the support that my brothers have given me in this endeavor like i'm just shocked that they've read the book and told other people about they on,
0: it they, like were they on board with everything like in terms of your de- like depictions like where the memory yeah. the memories
2: yeah. line up the greg brother has chosen not to the
0: greg brother read
2: <laughs> <laughs> the greg in the book my my brother who's not really named that oh, right. um okay. he he's not going to read the book just because it's a little traumatic for him but um simon uh has been a huge supporter and has you know bought copies and um it's just all very yes everybody i guess well to answer your second question i um i heard a lot of stories that even i'd forgotten uh about or that i didn't know of about like my dad and his anger, like for instance, this is a good one. My brother reminded me that, um, I was like 12 or something and, um, uh, what's it called? My George Michael's, is it George Michael? Yeah.
0: Faith.
2: Yeah. Faith. Yeah. Faith came out. Yeah. That was like a huge record. 19, right. 1988, 1988, um, I want your sex right? So everybody had that cassette. And so I had that cassette in the car. And I wasn't in the car, but my brother and my dad were in the car. And my brother was really little, like 10 or something. Um, But he remembers this really clearly. And he said the song Father Figure was on. And that my dad was having like a really, he was like, what do you think your sister... What, what do you think she thinks this is about? Father figure. <laughs> it, like, he was, get, he was, like, reading way too much into it. <laughs> right. And then I Want Your Sex came on, I guess, when they were pulling into the driveway of our house, and he took the tape out of the car and came into the house and, like, s- slammed it, you know, like, ran into my room and, like, smashed it against the wall <laughs> into many pieces. And... Uh, banned George Michael from my. Uh, it's crazy. <laughs> no. Meanwhile, I'm like listening to Sticky Fingers <laughs> by the Rolling Stones and playing with the the dick zipper on the album cover. Anyway,
0: uh, did you wait, Stuff wait, wait, like was that. Was he under the impression that George Michael was straight? Because I remember at that age for me, I was like, I, I thought he. He would...
2: must have. And it wasn't even about a, a that. Yeah. Yeah. Everybody, whatever the word sex, the word, it, it was scandalous. Figure. It was scandalous. I want your sex. It was scandalous. Did they play it at your school dance?
0: I, I don't know if they did that, but I just remember like it was on MTV. And then remember like George Michael in the video yeah. it was like, this is not about casual sex. It's about monogamy. Remember he had to like put I a disclaimer on it. remember that <laughs> like it was yesterday. Um, so before I let you go, I want to ask you because it's kind of a unique experience for a literary, uh, literary agent to publish. I mean, yes. I, I, several do, but I mean, yeah. it's, you know, you've been on the other side of the line for all these years. And then you talked <laughs> a little bit about the, you know, the sales process and the writing process, but the publication process, like when it's really, you know, yeah. ramping up, like, has it given you like a new insight into your clients? <laughs> like,
2: hell yeah. Like, I mean, not, New insight, like I've surprised myself that I have no interest in looking at Goodreads, Amazon, any of that, or my numbers. Right, none of my business. Um, I was surprised how scary that feels. You know, like when you do dip in in the beginning, as we all do, to see how many giveaways are going <laughs> right. on, um, and those early reviews. It's just like, woo, painful, like no matter what they think or it's not, but it's just like, wow, they didn't get it. I wish I could talk, but, but then or worse, it's just like the resounding apathy of like, you have a couple of dozen, you know, so your book is going to be this. It's not going to be that your the chances of your book like earning out its advance right. or becoming a, a bona fide success for the publisher so that they like remember you or even know that you're on the list. Right. Oh, it's, there's it's, nothing like that. It's, it's but
0: the thing is you come into it with a realist perspective because
2: Yeah. You... I I really try and advise all the writers to, like, protect themselves first and not, don't put any pressure on yourself, A, for the New York Times. Every writer I know is obsessed with getting into the New York Times, like, book review in particular. Guys, doesn't matter at all, except for your ego, because it just doesn't sell books. I, as an agent, I have seen, who, some of the best-reviewed, Novels, in particular, in in the history of the world, <laughs> just sell like a thousand copies, and they were on the cover of the Times Book Review, glowing, glowing, what does glowing. sell
0: books? Just word of mouth. NPR. NPR.
2: NP- like national NPR, um, definitely moves the needle. Word of mouth, of course. Reese Witherspoon at the moment. Oprah still. Um. Full court press, seven figure advance sometimes will be a kind of guarantee, but not always. It means you'll get you'll get as much as they can give in terms of assistance, right? But it's still a mystery.
0: It's still a gamble on their part, right? too.
2: It's a huge gamble.
0: So for people out there listening who are working on a book or who want an agent, you said now that memoir is kind of, it's not what it used to be. Now it's like celebrity memoir. Yeah. Like you can't write to the market. It's always shifting.
2: It's always shifting. Publishers are always surprised. The books like Hillbilly Elegy, which is terrible. Not that I read it, (laughs) but like, you know, that wasn't a priority book for them. They didn't know what that that was gonna who could have predicted that right and so i i mean i would be shocked if they gave that person a big advance i don't think nobody can did. predict nobody i can mean miss- you just have no idea and the market was really different when i signed this book up and you could kind of be you know you could kind of have like a thousand friends and that was enough you know yeah and now it's it's all about influencers and instagram and if i have to hear the word influencer again i'm gonna die because i think they mean like kylie jenner and those people don't buy books you know like the bookstagram like whatever
0: yeah it's so it's so imp. it's an impossible um it's, it's impossible to make it definitive. Like, nobody really quite knows in the end why certain books take off. It's like...
2: Right, like, look at the Sally Rooney phenomenon. Like,
0: that book is, she's how much Irish. Is, how, much is, how much is it sold? How much is it sold?
2: <laughs> I don't know. A lot. A lot. A lot of copies. Um, but that's interesting to me because... Not just because of her age, but because she's not American. And usually, you, you must be American. Not usually, but for this kind of buzz it's that's it's great and i think surprising like there's just no way that you can count on that
0: so every just write what you want to write to you the just, best of you your, have your ability to
2: write, i really tried to write outside my box if you know what i mean like we all do we try to be better you can't you, it's hard to i mean you can edit but you just have to be who you are on the page and it's worth it's worth finishing a project even if it never sells
0: did you uh have trouble with honesty did you have any like did you find yourself holding back oh yeah you did
2: i held back a lot of stories and a lot of things that weren't my right to tell like other people's stories um yeah, cuz I didn't I didn't want to embarrass most people. <laughs> well, I, I didn't want to embarrass anyone but myself. So I I think I was pretty careful about that or just tried to make certain things more generic, but I held a lot of stuff back and there were father-daughter s- stories that I held back cuz it's too much right. to like hit hit the reader over the head with like more repetition, you know. I was I, yeah, I did my best in that regard. But...
0: And But I mean, it's still very candid. You know, yeah. you're still like, not only are you telling a lot of stories that involve family members, but you're also very candid about yourself as a teenager, sexual history, drug use, yeah. abuse, like you go there. <laughs> and so I think when people do that, they typically, I don't know. It's like this, I think sometimes people can conceive of people writing these things as a as a kind of like setting the record straight or vengeance or revenge or something like that. But there's also, I think more often than not a certain nurturing environment that a person comes from to feel at Liberty to share that much. Do you see what I'm saying? It's like, maybe it's a little bit of both, but it's like you, you, like you said earlier, like as difficult as your family life could be, you always felt loved that comes through on the page. Like your family is a loving family.
2: Yeah. It's dysfunctional at
0: times. It's, it can be messy, yeah. But, like, I found myself endeared to each person in the family.
2: Oh, good. Yeah, my mother was like, I think you said in a podcast you called it ours a loveless marriage. And I wanted to set the record straight that she was like, it wasn't a loveless marriage. You know, there was love. It was just an untenable yeah. <laughs> situation and marriage. Um, and so, yeah, that's the conclusion that that I've come to. Um,
0: and you felt that Liberty to say, you know, to,
2: yeah. And as a rule, the advice that I've always been given by Betsy Lerner herself, an agent and two time memoirist, um, is you just have to tell the truth. Like when we ask it of our clients, particularly, you know, in nonfiction where it's like, you have to have a legal read. You have to like get into the nitty gritty about, oh, it's just, it can be really a lot. If we're, if we're asking our clients to the, to do that on the page, you have to do it too. Well, you, know? you did it. It's just the only way to go. <laughs>
0: <laughs> well, it's true. It's it's a really good book. I'm really happy <laughs> for you. you. And, uh, I'm glad to get to see you and to catch you as you're celebrating its publication and, like, what's next? What are you doing next?
2: Who, You know, I think, I know everybody says this starting a podcast. Uh, are you? But yes, because two of my two friends and also writers who care about like fathers um, in their work um, Matthew Philp and Elizabeth Thompson want to start a podcast called Tell Me About Your Father. Or where's Dad? Which is this quip that um, Dr. Drew used to always say to callers on Loveline. Oh, right. yeah, right. Remember Loveline? Yeah. Some girl would call in every show, and he, yeah, he'd be like, "Where's Dad?" <laughs> like that's his answer for everything. And so, what I found. Uh, you know, working on the book and promoting the book is that everybody has a father story. They all want to talk about their dads, men, women. And if you are a father, I want to talk to you about your parenting, you know, that kind of stuff. And there's so many people from people that we know that nobody knows with extraordinary father stories um, to Lisa Brennan Jobs or Aaron Carr, who also has a book coming out uh soon if not already um you should call it father you. <laughs> <laughs> it might already been be taken all right uh my dad wrote a porno is already taken did have you seen that show it's now on hbo but yeah. it was a podcast called my dad wrote a porno I've
0: heard, i want to say i read about it but i yeah. haven't seen it. Is it good
2: it's like a it's uk okay but my dad also wrote a porno so i Fucking love that Wait, title. He did? Well, he wrote a pornographic story. I think I mention it in the book. Wait, but when he
0: like he took a stab at fiction and you were like
2: A short yeah. He the he wrote a short story. He told me. And I got a job at the literary agency and I'd been working there a year and it was just a few months before he died. And he gave me this short story, he said. <laughs> To see if it was publishable, because he was thinking of submitting it to like Playboy or Maxim. It was a straight up penthouse letter, sexual <laughs> cuck fantasy about my mother. Oh my god!
0: I <laughs> like I like that I like it though, because I remember this part of the book. I like the fact that you were like not afraid to be like, this was a horrendous. This
2: is really bad, Dad. <laughs>
0: Um, but also like kind of sweet that he was like trying to like impress in, me, impress you yeah, and get into he, your world.
2: Cause then I, at that point I was a New Yorker and I like everyone he wanted to, to publish. And so I was in the, you know, had mm-hmm. the foot in the door and he was convinced of his, his writing, his literary prowess.
0: <laughs> so, uh, when is the podcast going to launch?
2: You know, Brad, we're figuring that out now. Okay. No, well, we're need... uh, this fall. This fall. All right. You, I mean, how got... does one even do this? I'll talk to you later. Yeah, yeah. I can. I like... can
0: consult. I can teach you uh, about the gear and how to. It's not that hard.
2: Is it so stupid to even try? No. I mean, it's not like you. I I would have these conversations anyway, so I like. I it's like fun. Talking to people. It's
0: It's wonderful, and I think that the key is to just believe in what you're doing. Like you have to like it first yeah. of all. And then if you want to build a following for your show, you have to just, you have to keep doing it. Yeah. Like on a consistent schedule. Right. Otherwise, cause people then become, you gotta, I always say you gotta feed the stray cats. Otherwise they're going to go to the next house.
2: And you just cold call people or, I mean, do you reach out or people just come to you at this point?
0: At this point, people come to me like I get publicists. Yeah. Um I love but that. sometimes I'll but sometimes I'll do out. I mean it just depends. It, or if like a person I know will recommend somebody or Yeah. Some of it's contingent upon who is coming through LA on tour just cuz I only like to do them in person.
2: Who do you really want to talk to next?
0: Um well, I mean there's a million people I have. I yeah. can't I can't reveal Okay. who's coming up, but I have uh some interesting guests coming up. Yeah. And Bigger names, big names.
2: Howard Stern.
0: But, yeah, I, I really wish. want to
2: read his book, though. <laughs> I, do right?
0: I do too. I do too. I do too. Yeah, I love Howard Stern because uh, it's
2: about the interviews.
0: I think. Yeah, and I think that's like the my favorite thing about him. Of course, especially like late. Like I like later period Howard Stern. I like sat- yeah. the satellite woke. years.
2: woke Howard!
0: Woke Howard <laughs> is good. Um, like you know, the earlier juvenile uh, humor stuff is not uh. as interesting. But he's his interviews. I think like. His interviews became better as he went to therapy.
2: And, which he talks about a lot. Oh, yeah. yeah I'm, I'm sure and that's this, what's in the book. Well, it, just on his publicity tour. Um, and he's clearly like... He's the perfect example of somebody who is just, has grown as a person and is better because he spends his life having conversations with people. Right. And in- not judging the content... But, but pushing, yeah. you know, like getting to it, like getting past that fucking, I'm on a junket tour and right. I have to, no,
0: you can't do that. Bradley
2: Cooper. Yeah. Like answer a fucking question. Right. You, you know, like it's not,
0: it's so glorious when he like pins somebody and he just keeps, you know, yeah. cause like as a listener, you're like, okay, he's cutting through the bullshit and it's, I think it's a great service. And I think it's actually, I mean, I don't know if it's always pleasant for the people he's interviewing, but it's. It's just always better to be honest. I don't know. I mean, you don't, you don't have to divulge every single dark secret of your life in a public forum. Yeah. But I do think that hearing people try to be real and have real conversations, for me anyway, is like really nourishing and like medicinal. You do, it has like a medicinal effect. It relaxes me almost. Uh, yeah. Because I think there's just so much bullshit. (laughs) Yeah. Like in the culture and in the way that people often present, especially like in a celebrity context.
2: Yeah. I think, I I really think like a conversation can save a life. I mean, just for that day even.
0: Yep. Well, and I think, you know, because of the, because of the fact that people listen in their cars or they listen in earbuds it's like one of the last bastions along with like reading a book Mm -hmm. for like slow food attention yeah, and like intimate connectivity between consciousness as Mm -hmm. plural. Um, you know, you get to read somebody's insides in a book or you can hear somebody if they're willing to be candid enough in a podcast or a podcast conversation, um, open up and that can be a lifeline, I think, you know? Yeah. So I can't wait to hear it when it comes out. We don't know the name that we don't know. Yeah, we don't know the name yet. Uh,
2: Let's say, tell me about your father because it isn't taken and it's a little more um, obvious. But I'm sure we'll use like a clip of where's dad. (laughs) Is that fair use? (laughs) If I can just do a snippet. Just
0: I mean, like I can't imagine they're going to come after you for a second. Okay, good. Um, Well, great to see you. Congratulations. Thank you. Alright guys, there is Erin Hosier Her memoir is called Don't Let Me Down It is available now from Atria You can find Erin online at erinhosier.com She's got a Facebook presence And an Instagram presence Don't Let Me Down By Erin Hosier Out there now, go get your copy immediately It's a wonderful book Thank you to Kill Rockstars and the band Stereo Total, as always, for the theme song music. Thank you to Tiger in My Tank for the interstitial music. If you want to support this program, you can do so at patreon.com otherpplpod. Throw a few bucks in the hat. If you want to write to me, the address is letters at otherppl.com. Don't forget about the Other People app. It's free. It's the official app of this program. The Other People with Brad Listy app is available wherever you get your apps. It's free. Go get it. Next week on the program, the return of Steve Almond.
2: Oh my fucking
0: God.